0: So, good afternoon, everyone.
1: I would like to welcome you all to Drisha's Winter's Mon and the second part of a two-part series, Who is Wise, One Who Eats Well, Maimonidean Perspectives on Health and the Good Life. Um, I do see a lot of familiar faces and names from earlier in the week, so I'm sure you all remember Sarah Zager. Um, Sarah is a doctoral candidate in religious studies and philosophy at Yale University, where her research focuses on the influence of Judaism and Christianity on moral philosophy. Um, And without further ado, Sarah Zager. Thank you, Sarah, for the introduction. Um, and it's really lovely to see uh, some, some familiar faces from earlier in the week. Um, so just a quick reminder if, um, of where we are and kind of what we're what we're going to be doing today. Um, in our last session, we spent some time reading what I think is really one of the strangest parts of Maimonides Mishnah Torah, um, which describes like a whole series of eating practices and health practices that seem quite specific and a little bit strangely placed for something that's in a halachic code. So we spent a lot of time thinking about like both what does this text mean for Maimonides in context, why is he writing this in the way he is, and also sort of gesture towards thinking about what it might actually mean for us and what we might want to actually get out of it. So today we're really going to be doing more of the second half of that. We'll have in the back of our heads this crazy text, um, but we will kind of see how different um, modern interpreters of of it and and modern post scheme or halakhic deciders who pick up on this chapter decide to use it for psak. And you'll see, right? I sort of gave a caricature last session of. Um, a version of using chapter four of the Mishnah Torah as psych of thinking about it as like, okay, do I really not have, am I really never allowed to eat carob in the same way I'm never allowed to eat pig? Obviously that can't be what, um, What my- doesn't seem like that's really a, a tenable reading of Maimonides, at least one that doesn't seem to fit at all with contemporary practice. Um, and you'll see that the, the post game that we're looking at today find much more creative and wacky um, and interesting ways of rethinking the significance of this chapter. So that's our plan for today. We're going to look at a couple kind of pretty snappy uh, little comments from commentators on the Mishnah Torah itself, and then we will sort of shift gears to spend the bulk of our time together um, reading a tshuva of Reb Chaim David Levy, um, who is was the Sfardi Chief Rabbi of Tel Aviv, um, died in like mid '90s, I think 1998, something like that. Um, and read his chuva about smoking, which contains a kind of a, a reading of these passages. Um, so not directly about food, but the passages are about food, and so it will it will help us to to think through some of those issues in that way. And as I said um, in the previous session, I want this to be both a question about like what it, about the substantive issues that are um, that are being discussed in the text that we read, but also as a kind of object lesson in how do we address. And how do we make meaning out of texts in our tradition that seem on the face of it to be like just too weird to do anything useful with? Not that they're like super problematic or disturbing, that's a different class, an important class, but a different class. Um, But just texts that just seem kind of oddly out of step with our contemporary reality. So that is the goal of of our time together today. So with that, I'm gonna share screen. So I want to start with, as I said, we're going to do some kind of quick hits before we dive into the tshuva that's going to be the bulk of our time today. Um, the first is a comment on the, that first mishnah that we looked at before, which sort of states the general principle that the maintenance of, the, of a, a body um, is itself a kind of something that God wants um, and is a good end that we should seek. Now, I want us to. So, we're going to look at um, a medieval commentator, um, the Migdal Oz, also known as Shem Tov ben Abraham Ibn Gaon, um, who who reads this passage. Before we start, one of the things that you should always do when you look at a commentary on a Jewish text is re- actually really read the Deborah Machiel. Don't just like slip over it, the kind of initial phrase, so here, because If you remember, and we'll actually see this further down, if you remember, the initial phrase, the sort of phrase they're quoting to comment on, um, which in English is highlighted, uh, is actually a little bit different than Maimonides' original text. Maimonides doesn't say, the maintenance of the body brings about a good end. He says, "It's it's part of the paths of God. So interestingly, the, the, the Migdal O seems to have a different text of the Rambam. There are lots of different texts of the Rambam that are out there. Um, but it's one that seems to kind of naturalize even more than the Rambam does himself. OK. So let's just read what he has to say. Seeing as the maintenance of the body in a healthy and sound condition brings about a good end. All right. He's going to comment on this phrase. Kol shebeperakaze, razal. Okay, so all of these things that are in the chapter, all of the advice about sleeping, about not eating carob, about eating spices in the winter and no spices in the summer, the whole bit, is um, are things that are stated explicitly in the Talmud. That's what the Migdalos thinks. And then he's going to give you a list of citations as long as your arm. He's going to say, in Brachot, there's this, in Shabbat, there's that. Here's all of the citations. If you go and look these up, You will have a hard time matching the citations to the text themselves. Not to say that it can't be done, but to to, to actually see where, what he, what the Migdal Oz really thinks is the connection is hard work. We're not going to do all that today. Gitin, et cetera, all these things. Which means there are many other places where this happens. This is where the real fun begins. This is a classic commentator doing a "Methinks the lady doth protest too much" kind of act. right? So he's going to say, these things are all explicit and clear in the text, and also we need to say, they're necessary. We need to say them. and everyone agrees about them. It can't possibly be that that's really true because if it were really true, he wouldn't have needed to tell you that. Right? So the fact that he goes and he says, oh, yes, they're all obvious and clear and everyone needs to know about them. and obviously everybody agrees is a good sign that in fact, everybody doesn't agree about them. And there's debate, right? And this should be sort of standard. If, you, if he's given you a list of t- rabbinic citations as long as your arm, you can bet that there's going to be actual debate and dispute behind them. And the same is true here. But what I want you to see, is that there is a tradition of reading chapter four of the, of the mission of Hilcho as just a codification of text from the Gemara. That's it, there's no science involved, there's no medicine, there's no even just like general advice about what's wise to do. This is a codification of rabbinic law. On the one hand, you might say that's crazy, and you can see it's crazy because he's done this sort of thinks the lady doth protest too much like oh yes everybody agrees and it's obviously very clear act which makes you think "Hmm, what if it's not so clear on the other hand though there's a way as we saw last time there's a way in which this actually is kind of contiguous with what the rambam is trying to do in the mishnah torah as a whole because if the mishnah torah is supposed to be a repetition of torah in the way that we described it last time a sort of repeating of the oral tradition then that better be what this is. This has to be based in oral tradition. So I want you to see that like there's a strong commentary tradition that gave you McDullows, but there's, there's other stuff there. Um, who read the Rambam this way. But that in order to do so, you have to do some kind of interesting interpretive gymnastics. Questions about that, comments, frustrations?
2: With the Rama himself, it's probably unclear if the Rambam himself would even say that though, right? Like the Rambam never says in chapter four that this is all from the Gemara, right?
1: Yeah, so the Rambam doesn't announce from in chapter four that this is all from the Gemara, and I, we had a little bit of a back and forth. I don't remember exactly who among you sort of suggested this, um, that whether the Ramam intends for the Mishnah Torah as a whole to be only from the Gemara. The Raman seems to say something like that in the passages from the introduction that we looked at last time, but on the flip side, again, you're going to be hard-pressed to really match that intention with what you find, not only in chapter four, right? Like the beginning of Yesodaya Torah is a whole description of er- Aristotelian astronomy. Like Finding that in the Babli is not easy work, and basically because it's historically crazy, it like doesn't match up. So. Part of what the Migdal-Os is doing, I think, is to say, oh, I know what the Rambam thinks he's doing. I'm going to take that at face value. Right? The Rambam says, this is a repetition of the oral tradition. So I'm going to take that claim at face value. I'm going to go through, and I'm going to see the places where this is kind of the, what he says is indeed rooted in oral tradition. And I'm going to take as my default assumption that that's true. Now, when the Migdal Odes comments on the Rambam saying stuff about Shabbat, he doesn't give you a whole discussion about how this is really drawn from the Bavli, because you already know that. It's obvious. And all he's going to say is, oh, yes, from the Talmud, I got X and Y. Um, so the fact that he has to say it already shows you that he's like making an interpretive step. He's not just assuming, um, but he's, he's Putting weight on what the Rambam stated intentions are, whether those intentions match up with the what the Rambam was actually doing is a is a different question. Um, there's a, the only other thing I'll say that just just to kind of lay all the cards on the table is that there is a, a long tradition um, in the scholarship about the Rambam, um, which casts doubt on all kinds of things that he said, either basically like did he really mean to say some of the things that he said so this goes for the philosophical parts does the rambam really believe what he says about creation of the world even though that doesn't match with what his philosophical perspective seems to be in other ways or was he just saying that in order to make his community feel comfortable so there's a kind of overarching problem with the rambam of like you don't always know when he really means what he's saying and so you could you could also say, oh yes, he doesn't really mean that every word of the Mishnah Torah is drawn from the Talmud. That would be too far. But he's saying that in order to make it make the code like really um, have an authoritative kind of status and serve the function that he wants it to serve to kind of replace the oral tradition um, as the, the main locus of, of study for Hanukkah. So. I hope that answers, answers the question a little bit. But, but you see some of the tensions. Um, and we'll see um, Rev Chaim Dolebi is also going to play, play out some of those issues. OK, so that's, I think, approach number one is to say, I really believe, I'm taking the Rambam at his word, I really believe everything in this chapter actually comes from the Talmud. And then you've got to do a hard lift to show, in fact, that's the case. And in a certain way, that move is like very um, well, there's good precedent for it in the, in, um, in the rabbinic tradition itself, because the rabbis do this with Tanakh all the time. right? They have some practice. They want to know, where does it come from in the Torah? So they do some gymnastics to show you that it comes from the Torah. So there's a way in which this is, this is an old game that's just being repeated with the ramba Approach number two, which we hinted at, um, or Erwin hinted at uh, last time, which is like, what if this is just good advice from the doctor? And there are other places, so the Rambam in Pirke Moshe, which is his, um, his uh, like medical, one of his medical treatises, where he just like records various kinds of you know how to deal with ex ailment kinds of stuff. He says, "I have gathered all these things. Um, I haven't written them myself. I got them from Galen and Hippocrates." Here's the stuff. Um, and occasionally he departs from Galen and Hippocrates, but maybe what's going on in this chapter is just nothing to do with Chazal at all just a list of the going medical practice. Those seem like kind of two opposite poles, right? One is to treat this as entirely traditional. And one is if you're going to lean on this passage from the Ramah himself, you might say, oh, this is just medical advice. And it actually has really nothing to do with the rabbinic tradition.
0: Um, Can I ask a question?
1: Please do. Sorry,
0: okay. So I came in a little bit late, so maybe you've covered this ground already. But after going through all the, uh, Hanukkah stuff and reading about the Rambam and his view of Greeks and, and so on. It was also a Greek aesthetic with the body. Mm. And um, there's a whole thing about why they why they were, you know, the whole thing about yeah. circumcision. and the. So maybe it's not mm-hmm. a medical thing, but an aesthetic thing. And if Rambam sort of looked to the Greeks for his philosophy, he might have looked at them for their aesthetics as well. And being a doctor, I and mean, maybe there's some sort of combination there. But I just tend to think yeah. that with him, you mentioned Rashi, who worked on a vineyard. So their times and where they live, and their philosophy, Judaism aside, exactly. I think played a role in somehow their their advice.
1: Right. So I think there's definitely the case that like the Rambam's experience as a doctor influenced what he says here, and also his rooting in the Aristotelian tradition. influences what he said here. There is a sort of historical note that I think will help us unlock some of this, which is that the Rambam, we always talk about, oh, the Rambam reads Aristotle and he's engaged with Greek philosophy. But in a certain way, that's like kind of a lie in the sense that it's not really Aristotle, Aristotle. It's Aristotle through the Islamic tradition of interpretation of Aristotle, um, which is less comfortable with some of the Greek aesthetic than Aristotle himself is. So, this is a kind of fine grained, like scholarly distinction, but it's actually helpful here because in the Greek version of the story, Um, and Aristotle loves to talk about like doing gymnastics and the way that it can be helpful to you, um, right? And a certain kind of beautification of the body that the Ramam himself does not seem comfortable with. And there's a way in which the Ramam actually can sound more ascetic, more kind of like uncomfortable with everything bodily and more focused on, on just the life of contemplation than even Aristotle himself will seem. But Aristotle himself also has a kind of Strong sense that the best life is one that is devoted basically entirely to contemplation. So even though there is this like Greek aesthetic of the body, it's not clear that the stuff that the Raman says about the body is kind of plugged into that aesthetic. It seems like it's picking and choosing parts from the Aristotelian tradition filtered through the Islamic sources that he's getting it from, which emphasize things like, you know the Olympics as a kind of celebration of a certain kind of aesthetic body um, as as sort of uncomfortable and disconnected from the contemplative, like philosophical life that the Ramam thinks you're supposed to have.
0: Yeah, my, my, so, my only point was that with the gymnasiums and with the statues of Zeus and, you know, but if that's somehow in your brain, you're not...
1: Yeah, I don't a, think he's yeah. so plugged into that. Because he's only getting, right remember, he's never in contact with like actual Greco-Roman culture. He's in contact with Muslims who read Aristotle in order to understand how to be a good Muslim. So he's they're ne- like, he's not in contact with people making statues of Zeus. He's in contact with people who he thinks, right, Muslims, who he thinks are better monotheists than he will ever be. Um, so I don't think he's kind of clicked into that, and it's actually interesting then to see what, what Muslim commentators and, and the Rambam and kind of Rambam style, Jewish commentators who come after the Rambam do with the parts of the Aristotelian tradition that seem kind of obviously idolatrous um, because you know, Aristotle believes all kinds of crazy things that don't fit with either um, a Muslim monotheism or, or a Jewish monotheism. So the Ramam there, right? Like, I think it's, it's, it's important to remember the Ramam is engaged with Greek philosophy, certainly, but it's not kind of filtered through actual Greco Roman culture. It's filtered through the, the Muslim interpreters that he, he's getting his texts from.
0: And then, so, my last thing was where he lived. I mean, just the diet in general in Spain was different than it might have been elsewhere. So, I don't think they were so heavy on grains and breads as it might have been fish and Chickpeas and things yeah. Like so that I country.
1: don't I don't know super a lot about like the actual diets of people living in in medieval Spain and North Africa, but it may easily be that those are those things are 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 part of it. And I don't know how well that matches up with some of what he says about like um, what you should eat in different seasons and things like that. Um, but I think actually, in a certain way, you've actually given us a like really beautiful pivot to the next step. Because what we're going to do is read this Tshuva of Rav Chaim David Alevi. But in order to read it, we need to like take three steps back and read some good text from the Torah. Um, we need to read some Tvarim. Because in this text from Deuteronomy, you see the verse that kind of grounds the, the commandment to guard one's body, and you'll see that it's actually articulated in a context that's about idolatry. And one of the central debates about how to read this verse is about to what extent is this verse specific to idolatry, and to what extent is it actually offering a kind of much broader commandment to guard self or one's body. So we're going to jump in, read some. Read some good Torah, and then we will uh, use that to kind of unlock the Chuba the Rev Chaim David Alevi. So here we go. Okay. So we are describing what happened on Sinai. That's what's happening here. Moshe is repeating all of this to the people, and he's reminding them what's happened. And the fact that we're talking about Sinai will become significant. For Rav Chaim David Alevi, because he wants to use that Sinai moment as a kind of literary trope to help us read the Ramah. Okay, are we ready? Here we go. Okay, God spoke to you out of the fire, and you heard the sound of words but you did not see any image, only a voice, okay? Fine. Okay, he said, he declared the covenant to you to keep these, to command you to do these um, 10 things, right? the 10 commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets. Great, fine. And you should, these are the rules that you need to, um, to follow in order to go into the land that God has given you, you're going to cross into um, and occupy. All right. Now here's our verse that, that, that matters. The rest, which is context. All right. At the same, you should guard yourself very well. We're going to spend some time figuring out what on earth this word means. Your your nefesh, maybe soul. We'll come back to that in a moment because you didn't see a an image now the word key is the hardest word to translate in the bible because it can mean and but because since all kinds of fun things so we need to spend some time thinking about that word because how we interpret is going to actually determine how we read this whole commandment all right you didn't see a um, you didn't see an image at the time that god was speaking to you in horev out of the fire so, if you have only this part of the verse, which is the part that gets quoted, right? I, I remember last time we met, Helene just quoted that verse, rattled it off to us, but she rattled off this first part, right? You should guard yourself. Often that gets quoted as you need to guard your body. Now, if you think you should guard yourself, so because you did not see, An image or did not you didn't see an image but at that time then you might actually think that what's really going on here is that god is telling you to guard your soul from idolatry god isn't telling you to keep your body safe or whatever god is telling you that you need to be careful about the possibility that you would Create an image to see, right? Which is exactly what happened in the story, right? We we make the golden calf and now we create an image that is that is illicit. So if you read this as a kind of just in, in, in its own context, you might be led to believe that this verse has nothing to do with bodies at all. It has nothing to do with that. It's only about um, the possibility of idolatry and keeping yourself away from idolatry. I want to just make one other note before we move on about this word, So you might think, I think we've we've been kind of programmed for all kinds of reasons to think that the word nefesh means something like soul. But it doesn't have to be that. It might just be self or something similar. Um, and I think it's worth like remembering that that's part of what's going on. Um, and it also, I think, It could even mean like it can have a more physical connotation as well. And so that's kind of how we end up with with reading the verse this way in in the kind of broader tradition. So it's worth just noting on the one hand, this verse is often deployed as a kind of source for the, the commandment to guard your body. And at the same time, it's not obvious that that's what it means in context. Clear about that? Questions? So far, so good. All right. So now we have all the information we need in order to be able to read this uh, chunk of a tshuva. It's not the whole thing. Okay. So, Ramim, th- this is one word of background of Rev Chaim David Al Levi. Um, he has the most amazing title for his collection of tshuva, a Rav, Rev, namely him. Um, right? You should make for yourself a teacher, and one is provided to you here in this book. It's like beautiful and chutzpahdik and, and just the best. Um, Okay, but, but he, he, it's not so it because he's like pretty amazing. So he can get away with things like this. Um, and it's notable that this is a chuva about smoking in 1976. By the end of this, we will see a chuva from Rav Moshe Feinstein um, that comes out just after the American Surgeon General's report, which kind of unveiled a lot of the really uh, deleterious effects of smoking. So this is well into that conversation. So it's worth just like knowing when he said this stuff. All right, so here's what he has to say. Lots of people have asked me, in writing and also orally, to explain to them the basis for a halachic prohibition on smoking. Now, it's notable how he phrases the, the statement. They want to know what the basis is, assuming already that there is a halachic prohibition on smoking. Why do they think that? Because he was interviewed on television and he said it's usher to smoke. It's prohibited, according to Halacha, to smoke. And so, because he was asked on television, then all these non come and are like, but why do you think that? Explain yourself. So, this is what we get. Okay. Okay. Therefore, I have decided to do this um, kind of in public, in print, um, in the hope that those who that that group of people, that public, right, who understand themselves as obligated by halakha will therefore like develop the strength to um, stop themselves from smoking. So it's interesting what he's trying to do here. He he's writing this in public in Israel. He thinks that if he says it in public in print, it will give people who already think of halacha as obligatory and important an extra push to stop themselves from smoking. That the health advice alone would not do. That is, I think, an interesting, right? It tells you a lot about the social situation in which he finds himself. And I think that the phrase that he uses, Hamit Yachisla Halacha is actually really important in terms of understanding who he thinks his audience is. He doesn't say, all of my Kehila or whatever. Um, he wants this to be a broader statement, not only for his particular Sephardi community in Tel Aviv, but kind of a broad statement of the people who relate to Halacha as, in some sense, obligatory. He's not making denominational claims, etc. He I think he he kind of knows that he has a platform and he wants to use it. Okay, so now he's got to do some work to show you where on earth you can get a, a halakhic claim about smoking from the Torah. Because it's not obvious where that's gonna come from. <laughs> This is this last one is the verse that I just showed you. So the, the warning, and again, azhara is a kind of technical term in the gamara, in the Gemara, not just meaning warning in some kind of basic sense of like telling someone not to do something, but the negative commandment, right? So the, the Talmud will always ask, um, you know, onesh for such and such is this, Azharaminain. Um, the punishment for such and such is X. How do we know that it's prohibited in the first place? And they use the word asharat to ask, to ask that question. So he's saying the negative commandment not to smoke comes from these two verses, right? You should guard yourself strongly. elu ushmira ala chayim brachot etc. Okay, and from here. The, the various halachic decisors have learned that there's a general commandment to take care of your body. Now is where the fun begins. Now, because now we get our friend the Rambam. The Rambam pasak Alright. So the Rambam, I think again, he chooses the word very carefully. Pasak kein The Rambam paskins this and actually forces it into a halachic context. Which is a little bit of a weird phrase because he already told you that, um, that there is a kind of halachic, like there's a there's a negative commandment here. So the kind of in la halacha is like the Ramam makes a real decision and that's where we that's where this stops. That's kind of where we end up. We agree with the Ramam. This is what the Ramam says. This is not our Ramam, but our Ramam is coming. So hold on to your hats. All right, this is a little, he's done a little, little slippery zippery thing here. Any, this is what the Ramam says any stumbling block that a person has that might, that poses some kind of mortal risk. Right? The saka nat nifashot, mitzvah menu. It is a positive commandment for that person to distance themselves from it and take it away. Okay? So that's not quite the same thing as saying there's a negative commandment against smoking, but he's saying there's a positive commandment to take yourself away from something that's potentially dangerous. And again, that in a certain way fits better with the verses because the verses don't say don't do anything dangerous, they say Take care of your body, which might be a different different kind of thing. Okay. Um, Our rabbis prohibited all kinds of things because there is a mortal risk associated with them. <laughs> Makinoto makat mardut. This is like Torah for our times in a lot of ways. Right. So the Ramam says: any person who violates, who like puts themselves in in a situation of mortal danger, violates things that were prohibited by the rabbis based on mortal danger. I think is maybe a more exact way to put it. um, And says. I am just gonna go do this. I don't care. And what responsibility is it for you? Like, what 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 do you care about this? This isn't my like, why why are you bothering me? This is my own thing. I'm gonna take this risk. Um, or who says, I just don't care about this, I'm not paying attention. We give him lashes. The court comes, takes him out, and gives him lashes out back. Okay, so next time you hear someone who's like, I don't want to wear a mask, it's annoying to me. You've got some nice Torah to teach them. No, don't do that. Um, but I think it's OK. So what did you want to tell you here? Someone who violates the commandment gets punished. Then already, if you read very carefully, will tell you there's a negative commandment. Not only is there a positive commandment to guard your body, but actually there's a negative commandment against, against like doing dangerous things. And we know that because the Ramam says you can punish people on the other hand, if you have a kind of broad reading of the Rambam Torah, there are other cases where he seems to give people Maka, Mardut kind of like out of thin air, and this is potentially one of them. So, you know, you, you might have some worries about like reading this too too strongly, given kind of the broader picture of what the Rambam does. Okay, questions thus far? Yes,
3: Sarah? Yeah. Hi. Uh, From what I understand that uh, the halacha generally does follow uh, what the scientific uh, data tells us, like you said about the Surgeon General warning about the smoking, right? So the the question comes when when there's no consensus about a particular health issue, what does halacha do then?
1: Yeah. So when there's no consensus, it gets much, much harder. But I also want to save don't I, I, I want you to get, save that thought for the end of this year, because at the end, we're going to see somebody who's got the Surgeon General report and does interesting things. So hold on to your hat. But yeah, you're right. There are these cases where the science is unclear, and that's when the postgame have to get kind of creative. There's also, I think, a whole different set of questions. Um, about how it is that post-game develop their understanding about the scientific consensus. right? So like
3: an example would be medical marijuana.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or like there are all kinds of examples where like um, right, somebody who's a post is often trained in Jewish law, but they're not necessarily trained in medicine. So then how do they develop the tools that they need to actually understand what the scientific consensus is? Sometimes like with smoking, it's pretty clear eventually what the scientific consensus is. In lots of cases, it's harder. Um, and notably, the Ramam is only talking about cases where the rabbis have prohibited something because of Sahana Nechashah. It's not obvious, right? So, like, a good case is skiing. I will say, as someone who grew up skiing her whole life, um, some people think that skiing is prohibited on this basis. Um, the Ram, what, this reading of the Ramam doesn't get you to prohibiting skiing because it, it only seems to apply to things that the rabbis prohibited because of Sakana Nefashot, which is not quite the same thing as anything that you might perceive to be Sakana Nefashot. But we'll get there. All right. He's now, um, just after this, he's, he gives you, he kind of runs through the history of Halakha and this question. I spared you that because it's, it's long and complicated and, and kind of takes us further afield than we want to go. We want to know what does he say about the Ramam specifically. Okay, Shema Hanal, Nevesh Taud Acharei Avoda Zara. Here's a question a person might come up with. In fact, the person asking the the original question, right? That this is like writing original poster on like a forum, internet forum or something. Um, This is a question that the original original questioner might ask. Isn't it the case that all of these people who say various things about um, this prohibition, that this this statement that you need to guard yourself actually are only interested in the question about avodazara. They're not actually ever interested in um, in, something that's a broader statement about health. They never think that. What if, like, right? If you just had the verses, I sort of set you up for this conclusion. If you just had the verses, you might have thought, "Oh, well." In fact, this has nothing to do with guarding your body at all. Or even, and this is a kind of more subtle way to think about it, um, that's a little bit informed by some some Bible scholarship. Sometimes it seems like one of the things that motivates the Torah, kind of in its Near Eastern context, to say um, to say things that that seem like they're against kind of like the bodily integrity or something. So like the good example is, is tattoos. It seems like that is, you know, you can read that theologically as like your, go- your body is a gift from God and it's kind of perfect and you shouldn't intervene. Um, but kind of historically, a lot of scholars think that part of what's going on there is that other ancient Near Eastern religions engage in various kinds of practices, either tattooing, but also like human sacrifice practices that were treated the body differently. And so part of what, um, when, when the Torah is saying like guard yourself, it's guarding yourself from those idolatrous practices. Actually, does have something to do with the body. So I originally sort of set these up as like two opposite readings of the text, but there is a way to kind of click them together and see them see them connect a little bit more directly. Okay, fine. So it's, you might have thought the following thing. You might have thought, oh wait. This, pro, this statement about guarding yourself is in fact only to do with idolatry. and since smoking has nothing to do with idolatry, obviously, then this is kind of not connected to the situation, right? It's Loka orlinyan, we don't care about it, and it's not going to decide the question of whether there is a prohibition on smoking. All right. Shakin, Hasse Shahu. Right, because the verse ends with this phrase of since you saw no shape or no image on the day that God spoke to you. Now he's going to answer. That's our Perik, That's the one we've been looking at. All right, so I think. That the Rambam wrote Peric 4, Peric right, Dalit of Hilso Deo, the chapter we looked at last session, specifically in order to fend off this question. He thought that you would go along and read this and be like, ah, that's just about idolatry. The body has nothing to do with it. And maybe even, let's like go a little further, maybe even you've read other parts of the Rambam and you know that the Rambam is like not so enthused about the body generally or about paying attention to the body. And so then you think, ah, okay, really what's going on here is something about idolatry, and therefore it has no kind of significant um, implications for me um, in other areas of Halifax, certainly not for contempt, you know, pretty late questions about things like smoking cigarettes. Okay, you might have thought that. But the Ramam writes this chapter with all of this detailed advice about carob and spices in the winter and citrus fruits and all the rest of it in order to get you to stop thinking that wrong thing. That's what he's saying. All right, now he's going to quote the Ramam very nicely. This is the first Mishnah of our chapter. We've spent some time with it. Isn't it the case that having a healthy and, like, let's say, complete body is among the paths of God. Because it's impossible for someone to know or understand the way, like the important things to know God, basically, um, if the person is not healthy. Okay. So we should do things, not do things that are dangerous to our body or destroy our body, and only do things that heal the body. And here's a list of them. And then there's the list. This is a quotation from the first section of the chapter we saw last time. And in fact, the list is very long. There says says Rav Chaim Indeed, this is true. List very long, right? We saw it last time. You you scrolled through at least and, and kind of hunted around for the various different things. So now he's going to give you an account of what he thinks is going on with that list. And this is, I think, where where he starts to do some interesting theological uh, theological work. Kavanat rambam biruan biyoter. The Rambam's intention in writing this is very clear. Anytime a post-ex tells you something is bivorer biyoter, you should assume immediately that it is not, right? Any time a a postdoc is like, yes, this is very obvious, that's a moment where you're like, hmm, maybe not so obvious. So the Ramam's intention, very clear. Seems like it's not, because there's a lot of debate about this. Okay. okay long sentence. Here is the Ramam's intentions. If it were the case, even if it is the case right? maybe that's better, that the Torah is only talking about keeping yourself from idolatry when it states these verses, and it's only interested in what you saw and what you didn't see, right? You saw, you didn't see an image, but you heard a voice. Um, and the only thing that this verse is about is about idolatry. It's nonetheless the case, right? Even if you read the verse that way, the rabbis understood through their like kind of deep wisdom the hidden meaning of these verses. So it's not just that, even if they are about idolatry, we'll grant that kind of shuto, according to its plain meaning in the Bible. But the rabbis understood that there was something deeper here. What is it that they understood? <laughs> Last so oh left. Okay, so if it's the case, right? Um. Well, let's read one more sentence. Umikan brurah hamaskana ki b'rosh uvar mishona shamur al briatha kidesha az tocha li shamur gab al mashetzivat shetzivata be otom amad harsinai. All right. The goal here, even if it is about idolatry, right, or about remembering what happened on Sinai, you can only achieve all the different things that the Torah asks of you based on on what happened at Sinai if you are actually physically able to do so. So it must be, even if this whole thing is only actually about the moment that happened on Sinai, that moment and its full meaning is actually only accessible to you if your body is healthy. So it, go Can ahead I one
3: thing. I, yeah. want to, I know that Robbom is a rationalist, but I wanted to say that I think that when a person gives into all of their temptations and, and eats things that are harmful to their body, it's a form of self-worship, which is a form of vodazara.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, right. So it's like you are only... When you're just following your own desire, maybe that's a form of kind of self-worship. I also wonder if it's basically just like a form of self-destructive behavior. Maybe at the same time, right? There's a kind of weird boundary between worshipping yourself and saying like, "I can do whatever I want. I'm so great," and also like, "I'm damaging myself, and I don't. Either I don't have the ability to stop, or I don't really care." Right? Um, All of those kinds of kinds of issues are are played out here. What seems kind of interesting about this move is it does two things. On the one hand, it makes making kind of healthy choices about what you eat and other kinds of things you do with your body like very central to the very project of Torah. The only way that you're even going to understand what receiving the Torah from God on Sinai is and what significance it has for you is if you are plugged in to taking care of your body. That's on the one hand. So, on the one hand, it kind of elevates this to like an even like meta halachic, not in a diminutive way, but in a like really intense way principle. It's the thing that makes everything else possible. You can't get into all of these questions about, you know, Shmirat Shabbat or whatever, if your body is kind of not not taken care of. I think on the flip side, this has some pretty disturbing implications. Um, if you think kind of more generally about the theological experience of being someone who's ill in any way, right, Sinai, the like fundamental covenantal moment of the Jewish people with God becomes inaccessible to you. And your ability to remember it, right, which is a sort of central like way that the Jewish people are constituted, is diminished because your body is not able to respond to commandments in the same way. So uh, on the one hand, I think this can kind of like elevate taking care of the body in some ways, but it can also um, remove people from the, the project in a way that, that that might be like, that I find a little disturbing. Just, I'll just lay it, lay it out there. Um, I'll pause there for questions or reactions thus far.
3: As, as I mentioned last time, That, I mean, if you speak to any chaplains in hospitals or people who have serious cancer and illnesses, you see that a lot of them, like we said, do have this uh, bright revelation of uh, God in their life, like, wow, you know, God is really here for me. And and they couldn't have that if they had the distractions of taking care of their bodies. There's the flip side to that as well.
1: Yeah, so I think right. So there's, I mean, there's two things there. One is like what happens when I basically hand over the care of my body to someone else, right? Which is like often what happens in hospital settings, and that can be both like tremendously alienating, and also maybe like in a certain way empowering. Um, you can achieve the kind of purely cognition state that the Rambam wants you to do, because you just like hand, you you kind of outsource everything. That also leaves you with like a lot less bodily autonomy, right? In ways that we are familiar from hospital settings. Um yeah, I, I think that's part of this. What's interesting to me here is that for Rav Chaim Levi, Levi, the thing that's central is not, right? Like he could have gotten here a lot of different ways. He could have been like, oh, your body is a gift from God. I think we hear that language in Jewish spaces a lot. He doesn't say that. Um, nor does he say you would be better able to contemplate God if you understood, if, if you had a, a body that would let you do that. Right? That's what the Rambam says. The Rambam wants to make this all about contemplation all the way down. Rav Chaim Zvi is a good halakhicist. And so he says, no, it's about mitzvahs. Don't tell me it's about like contemplating the truth of God's oneness. No, it's like, can you do a mitzvah, a mitzvah ase, and can you not do a mitzvah atlotaseh? Can you follow the prohibitions and, and do the, the commanded actions? And if you can do that, then you are connected to the experience of what happens on Mount Sinai. And if not, then not. So there's a different mode here. He's taken the Rambam's words and kind of twisted them and moved them into a kind of mostly halachic sphere as opposed to one that's about contemplation. So in a way, he's like taken the Rambam and kind of unrambammed him, like he's made him less like what the Rambam. Tends to sound like, and much more kind of about um, practical, practical ha. and in that way, maybe it's a little better, right? It's like a little less disturbing because it's not that you can't contemplate God if you're ill; you can do that, but there are certain needs of that you can't perform, and maybe that, like that, also kind of has some disturbing implications. But it might be that that's a little bit less; that's more of a kind of acknowledgement of an embodied reality, right? If you're like so ill that you can't you know, muster the strength to put on fill and then you can't put on fill in. That's kind of the end of the story for you. And that's a recognition of a kind of distancing from the project of Mitzvot um, that, might, uh, that might be less disturbing than a kind of lack of spiritual or cognitive relationship with God. So I think there's a kind of different picture um, Pulled in here that at least right we said last time the Rama knows that he's when he said oh if you're sick you can't contemplate God that he's moving kind of against a, lo- a lot of the stream of the rabbinic tradition which seems to say that you can do that or that even people who are ill have a like more intense relationship with God and I think Rav Chaim Wieselvi in a certain quiet way is walking some of that back here in order to, in order to argue that but I think also like it's n- One other other thing I want to just like plug into the conversation here. We spent um, some time at the beginning of last session thinking about the ways that the Rambam understands um, mitzvot in kind of two broad categories as connected to the welfare of the body and connected to the welfare of the soul. And it seemed like the stuff about food was sort of about the welfare of the body, but it was about sort of managing desires and therefore maintaining the social order. Rafaim W. Alevi has like disturbed those categories a little bit because he's told you that on the one hand, this is about mitzvot. That might make you think it's about the welfare of the soul, as much as it's about the welfare of the body. One, two, the welfare of the soul is not understand kind of pure, understood purely cognitively. But at the same time, engaging, like refraining from engaging in bodu zara is often for the rabbis, the like. Um, the kind of stand-in for talking about the social order. When they want to talk about the social order being bad, they talk about of odazzar of It's the kind of meto- like a little metonymy, a sort of part that goes for the whole. They're like things go really bad when you start being idolatrous. So when he says, "Oh, this is all about idolatry and maintaining a Jewish covenant through Sinai," in a certain way, he's also contiguous with the Rambam in terms of thinking about this. Is about um, the welfare of uh, the welfare of the s- the body via the social order, um, and kind of snuck in a notion of the Jewish people as a kind of legal or social unit or a nation, like through the back door through these through these verses. All right, let's go down a little more. All right, ki <laughs> deot al briuto all right it's also useful to point out with kind of some special emphasis that the rambam in chapter 4 of hilso Deo describes all kinds of practices that a person needs to do in order to guard their health yes we know that we learned that already so drehamazon su le ich long list of things, including eating, what kinds of things you're supposed to eat, when you're supposed to eat them, what times of year, um, how digestion is supposed to go. when you're supposed to sleep and at what times, how to wash yourself and keep yourself clean, how to do bloodletting, very important in the medieval period, um, how to have sex and when, etc. Good summary of what we learned in that chapter. Okay, here he's he's right. Rahind David Alevi has read the Migdalos and he's decided that the Migdalos is wrong. All—it's not the case that all of the things that the Rambam says in this chapter were explicitly la- laid out by the rabbis in the Talmud. That's not right. Right, a lot of them have been written according to uh, medical knowledge. V'chalak rabutinu And actually, some of them not only can't be found in the Talmud at all, they directly contradict things that have been said in the Talmud. So he's like, I, I don't think the Migdalus is right. I think this is only about, this is advice from the doctor, a lot of them, to the extent that it's advice from the doctor that sometimes contradicts what seems to be said by rabbinic sources. Now." If you have this reading of the chapter, you might think that therefore it doesn't tell us anything useful, right? It doesn't. It can't be used for psak Halacha because has nothing to do with the Rabbinic tradition. One. So who said that like Galen was authoritative Halacha? That's pretty weird. Um, but two, it just doesn't seem to have. It doesn't seem to have kind of Halachic bite to it. it. Just seems like it's kind of good advice that the Ramam recorded. Rav Chaim David Levi wants you to get the opposite conclusion from that reading. He wants you to think, because this is good medical knowledge, that's what allows me to use it as a halachic tool. You'll see how this works. All right. Ah, Yes, so he tells you there are contradictions, but then he doesn't spell them out. He's like, "Yeah, this is not the place to explain them. And you're like, but where else would be? He doesn't explain them. You can go hunting if you're interested. All right. Uvureshita tav. At the beginning of the parak, it says, According to the citation mentioned above, sarich adam guf, Vikan OK. It says it is necessary for a person to distance themselves from things that destroy the body. Um, and then it lists them in a long list. All right. Kol zek HaGadol ha hazaka. The Rambam wrote all this stuff in his halakhic code called Yad Hazaka, another word for the Rambam. Why is it called that? Because it has 14 sections. Yad, Yodalit, meaning 14. Um, so the Rambam chose to write this in his halakhic code. <laughs> The Farim the Igrot The Rambam didn't intend for this to just be like kind of nice advice alone, because if he wanted to do that, he would have written it in one of his lots of other books or in all of his many letters. If he didn't want this to be a halachic text, he would have written in one of his numerous non halachic works. Because he put it in a halachic work, we must assume that it is a halachic text. Reasonable assumption. Until you start reading Hilchot Yesodei Torah, because if it's a it's not clear that Yesodei Torah has an obvious, even like normative or halachic function. Doesn't tell you to do anything, though it does tell you to believe all kinds of things, including like that the world is, the universe consists of a series of interlocking spheres, um, all kinds of fun Aristotelian things that don't stand up to current science. So. In a way, this reading is very helpful to Chaim David O'Levi, but it's a very hard reading to sustain globally because of what goes on in Yesodea Torah. So you have to kind, of, to kind of play both sides of that one. All right. So if the Raman had wanted to say something in, something that was just good advice, he would have done that. And he would have written it in a different book. He wanted to give Hu Shotechan. So the Ramah must have meant not to give you general nice advice, but to tell you a halachic truth. Now, the halachic truth, the halachic like uh, truth is the ramb, halachic norm rule. The halachic rule is not never eat carob. Um, Right, because Rav Chaim Davidelevi probably does eat carob. but it is instead, there's a halachic norm to um, keep your body healthy and whole, and that that is among the ways of God, and he's like, in case you didn't trust me, I've got a nice pasuk for you. It is about guarding your soul or your body. And he can get away with saying that because he's already told you all this stuff about, um, about how we can read this verse as maybe being about idolatry, but only in some kind of derivative way. Okay. So Thus, because the kind of, even though the, the sources of these statements are about health, right? Even though the Ramah basically got all this from Galen and not from the Talmud, when he posked them as halachic norms, when he made them into a halachic rule, they are said to everyone as if they in a way that gives them the force, mikoach from the force of the holiness of halacha. Here, I think he wants you to hear something about Ma'amar al-Harsinai, which he's told you two paragraphs earlier. right? He wants you to hear, this is about, this comes to you via the Ramam, This medical advice from Galen gets transferred into something that has the force of a halakhic norm. It becomes something that's holy. It's not just, oh, that's a nice thing to do, and someone who knows about it told you that it was a good piece of advice. And the way we get, I don't know, good advice about like all kinds of other practical matters in our lives, you know, like which car is a good car for when it snows a lot? I don't know, but you ask someone who knows about cars. Um, Not that. It's not some sort of craftsmanship knowledge, to use a good Aristotelian set of terms. It's actually about um, the holiness of halacha itself. So by putting it in the halachic code, the Rambam gave it a kedusha that it would not have had otherwise. OK, this is the kind of claim that if you read it too quickly, you go, yeah, 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 OK, I got it, halachic norm, good. And you miss the theological kind of stakes of the thing. What's at stake here is not just, oh, yeah, now he's made it into halachic norm. He has given the Rambam more power than the bodily ever had in a certain way. He's given the Raman the ability to state something as having the same holiness, the holiness of Halacha, even when there's actually no basis in the rabbinic tradition to do that. Often we say, you know, in a certain way, this is kind of plugged into a, a certain kind of das Torah discourse of like what the rabbi says in the name of Halacha has an inherent krusha. But it's a little bit surprising coming from him and about the Rambam, because that mode of thinking is much less prominent in Svardi Halacha decision making, and so for Rav Chaim Davidalevi to be saying it is like a little bit odd, um, and to be saying it about the Rambam specifically is also a little bit strange. So in a certain way, he's like—it's hard to know exactly. Um, some people might read this and say, "Oh yeah, he's plugged into a certain kind of." Um, he's in Israel, and so he's had contact with Ashkenazi poskim, and he, he's plugged into a, a world in which the words of halacha have inherited Kedusha. But I don't know. I think it's also possible he's just making his own kind of innovative work here, um, and it's not just about a kind of dust Torah story. It's, it's something else. Okay. So this is, it has the holiness of halacha itself. He called Dean Aher Hamavu Arsham, Ukishaim Shum Adam, Mehar Hare, Be Isor Halev, O Dam Uvedome, Kahu had Dean Beyaha Lipsika had no evit Mesaka not Briuth, Mishum Shehi Mikdusha, Mikudeshet, Mikoaha Halacha. <laughs> so Just as no person would ever, in their right mind, kind of dispute the strength of the prohibition on chaylev, on prohibited fat. Now that may seem to us to be like a totally wacky prohibition that we don't think about that much. Because I don't know about you, but I don't think I could point to the suet on an animal. Um, But for a kind of rabbinic reader, that's supposed to be that's a kind of classic version of an isur of like something you would never eat. Um, And the rabbis use it as an example all the time. So though it might seem kind of weird to us, it's actually kind of, you could replace it productively with like, you would never eat a cheeseburger. That's like the, the kind of cultural status it has. Um, OK. No person would go along and be like, oh, yes, there's no usura on eating kyleb. That's crazy. Um, or on blood. Now it actually, now that I think about it, it may, may also be that these, um, these prohibitions are ones that seem like they could be kind of more health-related than maybe others, right, than like uh, not eating the sciatic nerve, which seems like it just has a kind of status as a, a, a stated norm in the Torah with no obvious, um, has a narrative basis, but no obvious kind of health basis, but maybe blood has a health basis. Um, a person should relate to the mitzvah of Taking care of their body and avoiding danger in exactly the same way as they relate to these kind of obvious prohibitions of, let's say, eating blood, um, because they too have the status of the like holiness of the force of halacha. That also is totally wacky, right? He thinks that something that is explicitly prohibited in the Torah. Has a certain kind of kedusha that should be exactly the same as something the Rambam told you, because he stuck it in his halachic code and therefore wanted to tell you that there was a there was a basis for it. Now, there's a basis in the verses, but it's a little more attenuated than like "don't eat chalev, which is very explicitly stated in in biblical law. Is that contrast clear? Yeah. So the Ramam has made a, a, a Rav Chaim David has allowed the Ramam tremendous power which is to create a set of prohibitions that have the holiness of the force of law that were not there um, beforehand. I think it's it's worth thinking about like the combination of kedushah and koasah halacha as two as two phrases here um, kind of notable as a way of describing what the force of halacha is as something that is maybe like beautiful and set apart and not just uh not just kind of uh restricting your behavior or is there something you want to say want yeah
0: to, to what extent is it that much different than taka notes of, of let's say rabbi no yeah in the, in the force of any
2: other thing in the Torah.
1: yeah so i think that it, it is in a way reading this passage in the Rambam as the force of something like Takanat Rabbeinu Gershom, but it's like a little bizarre because the Ramam doesn't announce it as such. they like Takanat Rabbeinu Gershom has like a kind of, there's like hoopla about it. It's like, hello, I would like to make a takana about this thing. Um, and that's not really what the Rambam is doing. The Ramam is like, it is just, a, right? It is among the paths of God to do this. Say there's a takana you can't eat care of now, or even there's a takana um you need to, to guard your body. I mean, I think part of this also is like Rabbeinu Gershom, when Takana when Rabbeinu Gershom makes his takana, he knows that he's creating a restriction that wasn't there previously. Right, or at least he's making a much more explicit restriction that wasn't there previously. So it's not just that, like for those background, um Rabbeinu Gershom made a takana that Created a lot of extra um, stringencies in Jewish marriage law, including a prohibition on a man marrying more than one woman, which according to rabbinic law is entirely permitted. Um, And it obviously has has gained very wide acceptance, at least in Ashkenazi tradition. Um, But there's a way in which the Ramam doesn't think he's, doesn't announce himself as innovating here. Now, on the flip side, the Rama never announces himself as innovating, so you shouldn't expect him to. And like to say, like, oh, the Rama doesn't announce himself as innovating, is like a little weird because in fact the Rama doesn't do that. And if anything, he has the opposite tendency, which is to try to pass something off as kind of at home in the Rabbinic tradition, even when it isn't. Right? Um, you can see this like the kind of grand example is he wants to tell you that all along we were supposed to know that God didn't have a body, even though like. There's lots of stuff in the Torah in rabbinic tradition that tells you that God has a body. So yeah, there's, there's something different going on here, but maybe it's the case that um, Rav Chaim David Alevi is kind of building on that Takana tradition. On the other hand, he doesn't use that language, right? So if he wanted to say, this is a Takana that the Rambam created that now we need, def- we need to follow, he could have said kind of and those explicit words, but he hasn't quite done that. And I wonder if that actually connects up to how he phrased the initial question, right? So he says, What do I want to do do with this? I want the public who relates to halacha biqiyuv to stop smoking. And how do I want to achieve that? I'm going to tell them that it's just like not eating prohibited fat. So he doesn't have to create new rabbinic law. He just has to kind of link it up with the existing rabbinic law. Is that helpful? Yeah? Okay.
0: Um, I want me? to read something just listening to what you were saying again. And um, it's a bit, bit off topic, but when you consider like the Rambam, like any of us, is a, was a man of his times. And he had mm-hmm. a wealthy family, and they ate certain things in northern Spain that he had access to. He was also a very early proponent of chicken soup. Um, and, the yes, and there's a I, wonderful uh,
1: paper in
0: uh, yeah. some so I, journal about that. Right. Yeah, he wrote about, you know, the benefits of that. But I think he had access to it. I don't know what kind of cook his wife might have been, but he certainly was eating things, utensils, the way they prepared foods, the spices that he had access to in northern Spain. So he might have written whatever he wrote, whatever he might have born at whatever time but he was at least writing in the context of what he had access to. And I think that kind of reflects, when you take a step back and look at like where he lived, what he experienced, what culinary traditions, I think that can incorporate into what he was writing about.
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely does, right? Like, I think that if you, and like, this is one way to play this out. If you look at American dietary advice about what is healthy and what is not, it probably does not include much data about whether you can eat carob, there's no carob here. Nobody really eats carob except in like strange, you know, again, as I said last time, poor substitute for chocolate. Um, There's a way. So yeah, it's absolutely the case that the Ramam is um, talking about the foods that he knows about and that he has access to and that people around him eat and he thinks it's a good idea or people around him eat and he thinks it's a bad idea. The question for us is, given that we don't live in Spain what do we do with this text which has all kinds of information about you know when to eat citrus fruit I, I mentioned last time that like you know he says to eat citrus fruit in the summer but that's kind of odd and in, in American context we tend to eat more citrus fruit in the winter um, So what's that about? I think again th- this gives this sort of takes us back to the meta question of what do we do with texts that are weird? What do we do with texts that surprise us um, or that just don't fit our contemporary reality right so, I live in New England, I don't actually have, like a lot of the foods he mentions are like things that are never, that aren't really available to me. So it's bizarre then to say, well, this has the k- dushata halacha for the specific things. So then we have to take a step back and do a kind of broader, different kind of interpretation. Rami, was that a hand?
2: Yeah, um, um, I, I was gonna ask and it's also based on the, the point about, you know, Rami's man of his time. It seems like this chuvah is basically what it's doing is, I mean, I'd imagine that the author of Chuba wouldn't say that what the Rambam said is halakhically binding, but it's more like he's saying the framework of what the Rambam did mm-hmm. of like this mm-hmm. medical advice is probably halakhically binding. Isn't then that, does that mean that he would, that we, based on this Chuba would say, whatever is scientifically accepted as like the healthiest way to live, that's what's halakhically binding. And like who gets to mm-hmm. decide what's scientifically accepted? And like, is like, is that what's going on? Like that's the framework of like whatever is like accepted in that day as being what's healthy. That's what you should do.
1: Yeah, I think that's basically what he's saying. Um, But I think there are ways to read it as more or less expansive, depending on your predilections. So you could take this, Chuva, and say what he's saying is the best scientific advice about how to keep your body um, is what you have to follow, and that has the force of halachic norms. It's the same, right? And so if your doctor tells you, I don't know, to eat less salt, then eating a bag of potato chips is halachically equivalent to eating chaylev or dam, prohibited fat or blood. That's like a big statement, right? It has a kind of huge, just think about all the craziness that we do for kashrut. Imagine if we did that for things our doctors told us not to eat, right? That's, that's a big, right, or our dietitians tell us not to eat. That's a huge shift. For the way that we think about um, think about what our eating practices are, so I think you could read this in that maximally expansive way. On the other hand, I think you could read this a little differently. He is writing this in the 70s, when it's very clear that not only is smoking like a little bit bad, but smoking is really bad, and even doing it in a limited way can be really, really harmful, right? So maybe it's not so bad to eat potato chips once in a while, um, but if you eat them all the time, it'll be really bad for you. But like, you know, you do it in a certain kind of moderation, and then it could be okay for you. That's not the case that he's talking about, and so some of this will turn on whether you think in the end for Rebbe Chaim David Alevi, this is a story about a positive commandment to guard your body or a negative commandment to avoid things that are obviously dangerous. If you think it's the second thing, then this might not might only apply to sort of not doing things that are overtly horrible. Let's put it in those terms. Um, and things that are kind of murkier or need to be done in moderation. You might take the, the Rambam's general advice about sort of taking the middle path, but you don't need to, to follow the scientific consensus to a T. And it's possible to, to eat ice cream or whatever. Um, so it, it, I think you can read this either way. Again, no matter what you do, even if you take the narrower reading, you say the only thing he's really prohibiting are things that are like off the charts horrible. Um, you've got to decide what's off the charts horrible. And there can be um, a wide range of things that that fall into that category. Um, I will say my my Morive Rabi, my dad, um, is a doctor. And once I, I have a very distinct memory of a, as a young child eating a piece of like skin off of a chicken, like a roast chicken and him screaming, that's worse for you than cigarettes. And like, okay, is that really true? Like, I don't know, the consensus about fat has changed. Um, but there was a way in which for him, it was like, well, that's obviously horrible. And to me, it was like, okay, if I do this a little, it would be sort of fine then. Like, you know, in, in a broader picture, it could be okay. So the, I think there's murkiness about what, even if you say this only applies in this narrow narrower category, you then have to ask yourself, well, who, you know, what falls into that category? And how do I decide what the scientific consensus is, is really demanding? Um, it maybe also on a more local level that this the, the, this ends up saying if your doctor tells you to do something, it's the halacha says you got to do it. Helene, were you going to say something?
3: Yeah, when he when the Rama Minhil Choteo says um, Ma Halim Ra'im, does he refer? to? Obviously not referring to ramen noodle soup. So what is he referring yeah, to? Yeah,
1: so he doesn't <laughs> like um, he doesn't like honey. He doesn't mm-hmm. like sweet stuff, um, and he doesn't like fruits, especially dried ones. Uh-huh. He seems to be kind of mechaving to like sugar is bad. Uh-huh. Like I think he, he's kind of, he, he already knows somehow that sugar is bad. Um, so that's a lot of what he thinks. Now the Gemara, that's one where the Gemara gives you good precedent. Um, so in in Perakachovell, in, in the eighth chapter of Avakama, um, they discuss a person who, who's been integrated in some kind of Personal injury accident situation. Um, and then the person who caused the injury needs to pay for treatment. And the question is asked well, what about somebody who goes and then eats all kinds of sweet, bad things and gets sicker? Am I responsible for paying for that? So it seems like the Gemara there thinks that eating sweet, like they say, right? Any kind of sweet stuff is bad. Mm. So that one, if you're the McDonald's, is like low hanging fruit, pardon the pun, right? It's easy to just to just click into that and say, oh, yeah, like Gemara already thinks that eating sugar is, is dangerous for you. Uh, so I think that those are the main things that he cites. You can go through the chapter. There are other other examples, I think. I mean, he, he you shouldn't eat too much. Um, he, he doesn't like melons. He's really worried about melons. Um, mushrooms,
3: so, certain mushrooms.
1: Certain mushrooms. He doesn't say much about mushrooms, as I recall. I'll and, have to put it again. Yeah, so you have to look through, but the main, the like one that sticks out is he's got like a whole, a whole Mishnah on like don't or a whole halacha, pardon, yes, uh, a whole halacha on uh, on not eating sweet stuff. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Okay, so that, that's where Rev Chaim David Levy has gone. He is. I think interestingly picked up on this chapter, given it meaning in the contemporary world by saying, this is just scientific consensus, but that means you got to follow the scientific consensus or you have to follow something like it. And that is not just like, oh, that's a good thing to do or, oh, that's even what the rabbis recommend. It is a crucial piece of being connected to the experience of receiving the Torah at Sinai, right? Like it's worth reading this in its most radical way. Um, that's a big, a big kind of a claim, and a, and a really interesting. All right, I want to. I promised Halim that I would, uh, that I would provide us with a different approach um, to this question, and and we'll get that in the Egrot Moshe at the end. So you could read this chapter as having maximal halachic force. That's what Reb Chaim W. Levy is going to do. You could read it as rooted in the tradition. You can see already. That, the, that Rav Chaim David Levy knows that out there in the ether are people who say, this is just nice advice, but it doesn't have halakhic standing. And one of the people he's thinking about, not the only one, but one of the people he's thinking about is um, Rav Moshe Feinstein, kind of one of the most important American orthodox post in the 20th century, um, who has this like brilliant little tshuva of which I'm going to give you like all but the dates and the signatures? It's like very short um, about smoking. Here it is, and it it doesn't mention the Rambam by name, but I think that's bidafka. Like he knows that he's not mentioning the Rambam by name. Um, he doesn't think that this question is sort of about that in a very interesting way. It's notable that he wrote this on. He says Zayin Chanukah of 1964 in January of 1964 the surgeon general's report was published explaining the extremely dangerous effects of smoking so it was obvious kind of in the public eye that this was a very bad thing to do and rav moshe feinstein is asked can like what's the deal with smoking um one just contextual note about rav moshe feinstein um Some postgame write uh, write responsa to vote about questions that are kind of brought to them in real time. Rav Moshe functions as a sort of appeals court, so he gets a question from a rabbi who is themselves dealing with this problem and wants some help understanding the question. So somebody who's on the ground and they write to Rav Moshe and they say, "Rav Moshe, can you help me out?" and actually, I should have given you this the first line where he introduces it, but he says, obviously, the person must be asking um, only about kind of whether it's bad, but not necessarily about whether there's like a strong story. So here we go. Oh, actually, no, I did give it to you. Great. He named I'm talking, here's a here's a chuva about whether it's okay to smoke cigarettes. But Okay, We're gonna stop there. So it it must be like it, it it must be that this is a question about whether you need to kind of guard yourself from it. If it were a question about whether there's a strong halachic isur, like real hardcore prohibition, that would be kind of weird. Because of this phrase, shidashu be Um, that lots of people do it. This phrase pops up with the Gemara, and it says, "Well, lots of people do this, so it must be fun." So his, his statement is like, "It can't be that it's really prohibited, because look at all these people; they are smoking. Like that's insane to think that they're really that this is really prohibited." and it. It says in the Gemara about this kind of case, Shomer Ptaim Hashem it says that on Shabbat such and such. It says in the Gemara, it quotes the verse, God guards fools. Um, and so it must be that God will, these people are doing something kind of dumb, right? They're, they're smoking, it seems like that's a bad idea, but God will take care of them. So don't, don't get all frustrated here about saying there's an Isur. There's no Isur. Everybody does this. And if God really wanted to stop it, God would stop it. Right? Or at least God will take care of the people who, who do this stupid thing. Okay, so it, it's quoted in Shabbat, quoted in Nida in these various places. And also lots of people. Who are important Torah scholars in our time and in previous times, these people uh, smoke. Okay. So in addition, lots of people. In our gener- lots of important Torah scholars in previous generations smoked and lots of them now smoke. So it's crazy to say that there's an obvious prohibition because in fact, um, how could they be doing something prohibited? That, that, would be, that would be too strange. And even someone who is extra careful about danger, and here he seems to almost be talking about secondhand smoke, about danger to others, don't need to, um, there, there's no prohibition even for those people. Um, be, uh, especially about um, the, the like smoke and ash that comes out away from someone who smokes, right? So if you're super careful you don't about avoiding danger, you've sort of taken that on for yourself, then there's no isur for you to be near someone who's smoking, right? If you have Rav Chaim W. alevis view, it's also also to sit next to someone who's smoking. So on, on Rav Moshe's view, there's no problem, even for someone who's extra careful. And obviously, it's crazy to think that someone uh, that that it's like there's a strong prohibition um, on smoking. So I said, right, th- he doesn't quote that specific um, that specific passage in the Rambam, but there's a way in which I think he knows that it's there, and he's pushing it away by not quoting it to you. This is the entire chuba This is not like there's not like five more paragraphs. This is like, and for Ramosha, Moshe, that's like pretty. Snappy, he has a couple snappy ones, but this is, this is one of them. Um, and he just he just rejects it out of hand. Now the question is why? On the one hand, it's like, well, everybody smokes and he doesn't wanna say that they're all sinning. Um, what's, what's behind that intuition? I think in a way it's a question about stability, right? If it's the case that the Rambam tells you, oh, you can't eat carob, but now we know that carob is fine, but you know things that are super fat and salty are not good for you. Then it actually what it means to practice halakha will change a lot over time, and it may be that for Rav Moshe that's a really scary prospect, but for Rav Chaim David Alevi in an Israeli context, context the scarier thing is that these people who seem to be. Treating halacha as a binding system, or ignoring what he takes to be a central norm, even as they're like super caught up in keeping track of um, a norm that seems less central or less important. Yeah, that, that sounds reasonable. Okay, I gave you this little line from the Bavli just because it's like it gives you the it gives you the whole uh, it gives you some int- an, an interesting case for thinking about this, and it's it's the one that um, that he quotes, uh, Rav Moshe quotes. Okay, Bitzlata Bishavta. So we're talking about when you can do bloodletting procedures, and the Gemara has various opinions about what days of the week it is auspicious or not auspicious to do this, based mostly on various kinds of astrological uh, predictions. So, as I said, this is a this is a class about weird texts, and I've provided one for you here. So. Beth slat on the the third day of the week my Tama, why can't we um, why can't we do bloodletting on that day lo mi shund kaimale me adam vazui me shafta nami kamalan vazui kivande jashube rabim shomer ptei Hashem. okay It seems like that is not a good time to lend blood, because on that day, Mars is dominant, and there's something to do with Mars and blood, and so it's like a bad time to let blood. It seems like it's probably the person will lose too much blood. Again, you could read this as, here's the scientific. You want to follow the scientific consensus? Here's the scientific consensus, the Gemara, also pretty weird. All right. Okay. Malik. What? Why would we? Then the Gemara is going to respond on of Shabbos. It's also the case that Mars is dominant. I don't know enough about astrology or astronomy to know what they mean by that. That's what they're saying, um, but that is okay. We've learned that already earlier on in the chapter. Um, why? Because everybody does it, so it must be fine because this is the kinds of things that people already do. Shadashu beirambim, shomer p'taim Hashem. God guards the simple heart. So it's not just that, um, yeah, this is a common practice. And so we don't need to worry that there is a problem here. This is a very interesting picture of, right, if you think that the, the, the Torah or rabbinic law is telling you to follow a scientific consensus, this is a bizarre picture. Because on the one hand, it seems to say, do what the doctor is telling you, But if you read this in the this Gemara, is kind of your way of interpreting questions about smoking or about eating, or I might say about coronavirus, um, you might be tempted to say, "Oh, yeah, we have to follow the scientific consensus." But there's also a voice in the Gemara that says, "If lots of normal people do it, it can't be that we have to be that worried." They have a kind of faith and confidence in that that. Rav Haim David Al-Levy lacks. Um, I don't know. And so I think you can you can think through for yourself which of those moods feels more comfortable to you, and also w- whether you're willing or not willing to say that the halakha for me looks very different than the halakha for people who lived 50 or 100 years ago. So we have, right around Kashrut, I think, even though maybe Kashrut's a bad example because there's been a lot of change in certain ways. Um, but we have a story that we tell ourselves about a certain kind of continuity with a lot of Jewish practice. And if you introduce this scientific language, you will introduce some change. And you're gonna to have to become comfortable with that. And if you take that really, really seriously, it's gonna be the case that scientific consensus is actually gonna change like a lot of practices of what it means to like eat in a Jewish way um, and make it look really different than it than it did a long time ago. So I think one of the things that this this helps us see, I I, I said at the beginning, this is a a tool um, for thinking about what we do with weird texts and texts that seem historically disconnected. There's a way in which you can use that disconnect to your advantage. right? The disconnect can either be, I got to put this text in the box because there's just like, I can't make head or tail of it. There's nothing I can do. But I think in this context, there's another option that's open for you, which is once you recognize that there's that gap between you and the text, that allows you to see actually an, an opening for a kind of um, broader reading of what the text is doing, right? It's no longer about kerub, it's about keeping your body safe in some broad way. But it also allows you to kind of make sense of and accommodate that change and sort of put yourself in a position of continuity with the realm as opposed to a position of discontinuity by recognizing that, like, The advice changed over time, and that might be okay. And it might actually be that what it means to take seriously, like the moment of Sinai, right? Like this fundamental moment that we often think of as a moment of continuity, right? Everybody was there, et cetera, um, as actually a moment where where some discontinuity is kind of built in and possible. So I hope that that um, can be a useful way of approaching not just this text, but other texts that you might find. confusing, pro- not problematic in a kind of like, oh no, it says something unethical way, but in a, in a just like really distant from my reality uh, kind of way. Sarah. It has, not, it has been a joy to learn with you. I'm happy to stay for questions, but our formal time is is elapsed. Sarah, was there a subsequent Rav Moshe Chufa after um, after the Surgeon General? So No, so this <laughs> is after the Surgeon General. In January of 1964 is the Surgeon General report. This is before Hanukkah of that year, Rav Moshe writes. Oh, oh, so he's out for a year. Mm -hmm. Wow. So he knows, he 100% knows what he's doing. Like, there's no way he doesn't. It's on every billboard. Like, he just, he can't, like, he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, Yeah, so there's some question about whether he reversed this later in various unpublished forms and things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But he, yeah.
3: But if his, one of his sons was asked that today, they wouldn't give the same shuva.
1: No, no. And, and the, a lot of, like, the, there are subjects. So Rabbi Bleich has a, a subsequent shuva that deals with this and kind of goes through Rav Moshe and then goes through other options. Um, so there's been a lot of evolution of Psa Kalacha in this question, like, since, um, since the General. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to give you these as kind of polls and then there are a middle middle ground. so like one other issue that's worth thinking of thinking about and I think actually plays into the food conversations in ways that you might find interesting is, um, is this is someone who's addicted to smoking like not liable for whatever for violating the commandment because they're unused Right, because mm-hmm. they they're effectively forced. Mm-hmm. They don't have control. You're gonna go around and be like, ah, oh, you're breaking a law that has some fundamental function in the Jewish people. No, they, they have no control over what they're doing. So that's another category that that pl- is important in this discussion, but you know, doesn't make it into a sheer about the Ramah. Um, it applies to any addict,
3: an addict of any type, really.
1: Yeah, it applies to an addict of any type, and I think also may apply to like all kinds of other questions about food systems, right? So, like, I'm thinking about people who live in food deserts and just can't get access to um, food that's healthy for for one reason or another. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone. It was a Thank joy. you.
3: That's great. Thank you very much.
1: I had a quick question. Yeah. Um. So when Rab is referring to God guards the fools, or then then the car is talking about. God protects the simple hearted, that feels like that's not an ideal scenario. Like you don't really wanna be a fool. I I don't wanna be a fool. (laughs) Right, Right. so I think, okay, a lot goes into what you think pitaim means. Mm. Right, Right. I don't- You can think pitaim means someone who's like being dumb, right, to kind of put it very bluntly. Um, In which case, it's obviously like a bad situation. You might translate it in like a little bit like of a less, yucky kind of way. And then it's like, oh, they, they're just doing what seems right to them. Mm-hmm. And there's some actually like God guarding them, right? If you want to take a kind of Rambam-esque naturalistic reading, what it means for God to guard a, guard someone who's simple-hearted or whatever is not like God swoops in and makes them not get lung cancer from smoking because that's <laughs> preposterous, right? Um, they do get like they do get lung cancer, Um, but instead that there's, they have, there's some intuition that even the simple hearted have that, like, if everybody is doing some practice, it can't be that horrible. Mm. On the other hand, like, I don't know, everybody did smoke. It was really bad. (laughs) They did get lung cancer, right? Like, so maybe that, that there's still a kind of counterfactual there, but there's I think it's a, you can read it as a certain a respect for the common person's intuition over and against like the the scientist coming in with data. Mm, um, and maybe that maybe that makes it like less less bad. But yeah, like, if you wanna, you can go around like if you go through go look up in a concordance right think about the where where that was used it's not a those are not nice terms and torah dafka is supposed to like help you get out of that state it doesn't seem like a good position to be in mach, machima peti, right yeah exactly good so, peti. right so the the torah is supposed to stop you from being this kind of a person so then it's like well okay um, but I think when the Gemara quotes it, they don't seem to think that these people are doing something all that bad. We're naive. They're, like, naive. they're naive, but like, you know, I don't know how naive they can be. Because I think part of what's going on here is that there's a Brighta that says you can't let blood on the third day of every week. And they can't for the life of come up with a reason. So they come up with this astrological reason. And the Gemara is like, no, I have a good Kashia. That doesn't make sense.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's
1: not like, it, to say that it's, um, you know, and then they resolve the Kashya in a kind of flippant way. So I don't know how, like, how strongly we're supposed to read that as opposed to just like, it's a step in the, the kind of shakalavataria, the, like, give and take of the rabbinic argument. Is that helpful? Yeah, thank you so much. So interesting.
2: Thank you, Sarah.
1: Thank you. So nice to to see you again. Sarah,
3: I just want to end with one thing I have to go is that I met a a, a Israeli rabbi that I knew 20 years ago from Brooklyn. I met him here in Philly and he looked the same, same energy, same vitality as his wife. What is his, what is his secret? He said he follows the Rambam's guidelines. Exactly. Here we go. Okay. (laughs) He didn't look one day older than he did 20 years ago in Brooklyn and he came here to speak guys that's what his wife says, and the other thing she said is i don't bother him
1: <laughs> okay. yeah i was uh talking to a friend about teaching this year and he reported to me a story about his rebbe who refers to pizzas as <laughs> which i think is amazing uh, <laughs> so, yeah Funny. okay Thank you all so much. It was a joy to learn with all of you. Um, And hopefully you'll come back and learn in another Drisha program soon.
3: Okay. Thanks for the great work. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thank you
0: everyone. Have a great rest of your day.